<clears throat> this sermon was prepared for last week when I was turning 70. I thought about that. I thought, you know, that's a interesting milestone. And I was thinking about my time as a preacher, my time preaching. I preached a lot of sermons in 48, 47, almost 48 years. I really, really started preaching before we got married, which was 47 and a half years ago. I started before that. So a lot of sermons about different subjects, different kinds and different things. And, and I guess it's changes somewhat over the years, but there have been a few topics, a few things that I have focused on that mean a lot to me that are really what I think are most important. One of those being the family and the home and the structure of the family and, and, uh, how people get along, and I haven't preached on that much here in the last two or three years. I need to do some more of that, but I've focused on that over the years, written some on that. And um, another topic that I've held meetings on, and I've held meetings on that subject around the country, I've preached around the country on this subject here before you, recreating the New Testament church. Some lessons that I initially did back in the... 19, late 1970s on this subject. One of those sermons I did once, one week that had 11 points to it. You know, you're supposed to have three points that all rhyme. No, this one had 11 points and none of them rhymed, but that's just the way I preached. So anyway, I broke it down and I, I made a series of sermons to go together about what is it that we're doing here? What is it that we're doing as far as the church is concerned? This is a critical topic. I was talking to Gary about this on the way over to the building this morning before the radio show that, that so many people uh, have a very shallow idea of what churches are and what they're really doing when they go. I know people have good intentions, but there's more than good intentions are needed. And we go to people, people think, for example, well, that's a Church of Christ denomination, that's a Baptist denomination, and sometimes they're probably right. Because there are places with a Church of Christ sign in the front that are denominations because of the way they think and the way that they act. The sign doesn't change what's really there and so forth. So, but really what this church is trying to do is just be a New Testament church. That's why our radio show is called We Are Just Christians. That's why, that's why our website is wearejustchristians.com because that's what we're trying to do. Imperfectly, probably. But that's no matter. That's important, but it's not really stopping what we're doing. The fact that we can't be perfect. If the fact that we can't be perfect stops us from doing anything, then a lot of people criticizing me aren't criticizing me very well either, so they need to stop because they're imperfect in their criticism. So you see, that doesn't stop us. But what are we trying to do? We're trying to go back, not to restore some historical church that existed in the 1500s, not to restore, like Martin Luther, restore or re reform the Catholic Church that existed in his day. He was just trying to reform that. No, the idea here is to go back, and I don't use the word restore. I use the word recreate. Because every generation of Christians has to recreate the New Testament Church from the text in their generation. We have to take the seed, which is the Word of God, Jesus says in Luke 8.15, and plant that seed in a new generation of human hearts in our generation. We don't know what the results will be. That's not always up to us. It's partially up to us in that we can do it effectively or ineffectively, but really the seed has to take hold in people's hearts. Whether it flourishes and grows and multiplies, that's God's business. We can plant, God can water and bring in, and God can bring increase, you see. 
And so our job is to recreate the New Testament church in this generation. Now, when you're old like this, you've lived maybe through a couple of generations, but it's still the same. And I've, I'll tell you this, I've had to change what I talk about and the way I talk about it since I've been preaching. Why? Because the word of God? No, because of who I'm teaching, who I'm addressing. It's been, it's changed. And therefore, the, what is emphasized and the way it's presented needs to be altered to suit that. Not the word, not the text, but that. And that's why we try, we make an attempt in here at this place to focus your attention week after week on the text of the Bible. That's why 99% of what you see up here, or 90% of it, is just the Bible text. There's a reason for that. I could put other stuff up here. I don't want to put other stuff up there very much. I want the text in front of you so that you at least get the idea that you should be looking at the text of the Scriptures to find out what you should think, not something else that I make up or I create. And so that's an important conceptual thing that we try to visually do because the job is to take the seed of the New Testament, bring it into a human heart where it can grow and flourish and bring forth the church. The church is not some institution. The church isn't, has organization. Really, it's an organism, a living thing that, that is created by the Word of God in human hearts. And as those human hearts work together, they become a church and we function together as a body with each different part supplying what's needed. That's what this is about. Now, I preached several lessons about that subject from the book of Acts, how to take what the early church did and make some important points about how we should be acting in our day and time. One of them I want to focus on this morning, in the brief time we have left, is this subject of being pricked in their hearts in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we have the culmination of Jesus' ministry, found in the Gospels, where he came and lived and taught. He bled and died and then was raised again and ascended to heaven. And then he told his disciples, you go back to Jerusalem and wait, I'm going to send power from on high, and you will be my witnesses, not only here, but in Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, to take this message to all men. And so they did that. And so the Peter and the other apostles went back to Jerusalem and they waited. And on the day, day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell. On the apostles, they began to preach, and he convicted them of their sin of killing Jesus Christ, the anointed one of God. And they asked him and cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? And he told them to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. And then it says here in Acts chapter 2, in verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added. Now we know from his history and accounts of the time, that far more than 3,000 people were in Jerusalem listening to this message or could be listening to it. And this passage really says it subtly. Those who gladly received his word were baptized, meaning there were many there who heard what Peter said, even though the Holy Spirit sent his message, they rejected it. They did not receive it. They rejected what he said. But there were 3,000 who did. And those 3,000 were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then it says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. 
Now, you will hear a lot of religious experts. You heard some of my comments about experts in Bible class this morning. But there are a lot of religious experts and people with backward collars and robes and all kind of stuff that will tell you, you can't recreate the church. It's a silly idea. I've been told this by them. It's a silly, juvenile idea to recreate the church in the 21st century. The best thing we can do is depend upon the knowledge and wisdom of all the previous generations, all the traditions and teaching they left, and establish kind of a historic Christianity. That's what you can do. I reject that. Because this says that those people of that day heard God's word and were baptized and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and teaching. Not in the traditions of the councils and the men's and the creeds of the time or the day. Or secular teaching. They didn't live by the secular teaching going on around them in the Greek and Roman world. They followed the apostles' doctrine. And so we are bound as Christians today to recreate that first century church in this generation, this time. That's our job. It's a difficult one at times to think through. We, we probably, we probably need to correct some things. We, we're always trying to learn here. But that's the job. That's the point of this. Oh, that's very idealistic. I understand that. That's the whole point. Do though, do what the Bible says. And what I believe, of course, the same thing you believe, that if, if God gives us something to do, we can do what God gives us to do. We'll do it the best we can. If he wants to raise up someone after us that can do it better, so be it. That that what our job is to do what we can in our generation to do what God says. Now, now what I want to talk about this morning is this fact you get from the Book of Acts that I think is so critical, and it's what I, what what my mind focused on as so critical to this mission of recreating Church of Jesus Christ here in the 21st century. And it's important for you individually to understand this. This isn't some church position. This is important for you to understand and believe that the church cannot begin anywhere, anytime until men are convicted of sin. This is a, precisely what is being taught in the book of Acts chapter 2. That the church cannot begin in any... How, how do you begin a church? I had a young man sit down with me some years ago. He, we, I'd known him since he was a boy. He wants to start a church somewhere um, up in Orlando, or I think, or wherever it was. He, he's a good fellow. And he, he took me to lunch at, at uh, Perkins or Denny's, and I'm always glad when people buy me lunch. So I thought, yeah, I'll go. So we go, and we talk for several hours. He wants to know how I can start a church. And so I began to talk about, you know, teaching the apostles' doctrine and baptizing people. And it wasn't at all what he wanted. He wanted to know what tax form should I file, what attorney's paper should I file, how do I get a bank account in the church's name, He, how do you get seating, where, where do you put the people... He wanted to know that kind of thing of how to start it. Is that how you start a church? Well, in the world's view, it may be. Some of those things are necessary. They're they're part of a process. But the truth is, I kept saying, John, you need to find out what the book of Acts says about how to start a church. I can't tell you how important that is. I said, how are you going to collect money, John? So he starts to go, I said, have you ever thought to ask, how do they collect money for churches in the first century? How did they do it in the beginning? And, and, you know, I don't, I'm not saying this in a criticism of him because most people I meet have never thought about this. He, he had no understand, no idea where to go in the Bible to find how he should collect money. He was just thinking of good ideas to collect money. Well, what do you think they do all over this city and town and country here about how to collect money for churches? They think of their own good ideas to do that. Do they ever stop and think, well, how did the first century church collect money? Why don't we do it that way? They don't. We're going to here. As long as I'm breathing, we're going to here, if I can do anything about that. Look at what the scriptures say. And I know you feel the same way. 
what the church, what the Bible says about that. But I'll tell you this, you don't begin a church by filing with the IRS or getting a bank account or buying a piece of property. That's not how the church begins. Not Jesus Christ's church. Men's churches can begin that way, but not the church of Jesus Christ. It only begins when the Holy Spirit through the Word of God convicts men of sin and they repent. Then the church can begin in that place. Notice what Peter said. We referred to it earlier here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, attested to you by God by miracles, by wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands that the Romans and crucified and put to death. So the Jews used the Romans to put Christ to death. Sorry, I'm mixing the words up. I'm quoting the King James, which I memorized a long time ago. I'm reading this. And he said, Whom God raised up, this Jesus Christ, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by them. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The King James says they were pricked in their hearts. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you go down and open up a bank account and call yourself a church. Let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to you and your children and all who are far off as many as the Lord our God shall call. With many other words he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And then here's the verse. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Some rejected it. They would not listen to it. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. That's a powerful story. That story can resonate with every generation of human beings. I know growing up, I grew up in a very conservative kind of congregation, conservative kind of church, and, and there were a lot of controversies that had gone on as I was a young man and were kind of winding down in churches about this issue and that issue. And basically the message I got from a lot of older preachers and listening, what the message that came to me, I'm not saying this is what they were saying, I'm saying this is the message that came to me, and I think it's a lot of truth in this, is that we fought the battles We've established the church. We've restored the church. Now your job is to keep all the museum pieces dusted off. We built this museum of the church, all of our battles and heroes. Now you get the, you just, you get to watch the door and dust and don't let anything change. Make sure you keep it just like this and, and dust. Who wants to be a museum keeper? Not many people. I know there's movies about that, but it ain't like that in the real museums, okay? Young people are not interested in being museum keepers. They want to do something useful and productive in the world. They want to do something that's meaningful. But this message is meaningful. This message tells young people growing up, the next generation of Christians, that there's work for them to do to take this gospel to the whole world and cause it to prick men's hearts and begin again this process of being just Christians and serving the Lord. This is something you can do. That's the call that's to you. I don't care how old you are when you begin. This means something. It's living. It's not dead. You know, the book of Acts goes on, and it, it has no ending. The book of Acts just kind of stops. It has a stopping point, but it, really the whole story it's telling about Paul's imprisonment, it just stops. People have wondered about the reason for that, and I don't know the reason. 
It almost looks to me like the reason it stops is because the story is continuing on right now. The story of the book of Acts, of the gospel starting in Jerusalem and going to the uttermost parts of the earth, is not finished. Because it's our job to do this and recreate this church wherever we are, anytime we can, by causing the word to prick men's hearts. What's this word pricked or cut to their hearts mean? Some some translations say cut, some say pierced, some say pricked. It depends on which version you're using. Pricked is the old version. It means to pierce thoroughly. It doesn't mean a little pin prick. I use a little pin prick to prick my finger every morning and take a blood sample to check my blood sugar. That's not the, that's not what this word means. It means that this would be more like if I took a knife and stuck it through my hand. That's the kind of the meaning here. It means figuratively to agitate violently, to sting to the quick, rip out your fingernail. Metaphorically, the pain in the, uh, to pain the mind sharply, to agitate it vehemently, especially of the emotion of sorrow. To be moved to extreme sorrow because of the guilt of their sins. And once they experience the sorrow of the guilt of their sins before God and their fellow man, then the idea was they would act. And when they were pricked to their hearts, what did they cry out? What shall we do? We have to do something about this. And so the church cannot begin until men are convicted of sin. And the word convict means it's a legal term in the Bible. Jesus said the Holy Spirit would come and convict the world of sin. It's a legal term, and it, 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 in fact, it has the word legal in it in Greek. It means to bring to bear evidence against someone to convict them, to bring them to guilt. And so we have to realize this is the message. Now, I will confess to you that this is an unpopular concept in the modern world. This is our problem. I read articles that the problem that churches have is that Christians aren't nice enough. Okay, Christians may not be nice enough, I don't buy that, but the fact that we're not nice about things we say to other people, or the fact that we oppose, you know, transsexuals enticing our children with drag shows, and we oppose that, that's not why people don't like Christianity. They don't like Christ because they have to be convicted of sin to be a Christian. How popular is the word sin in our culture? You can't even say it in polite company. The Bible uses it continuously. It's the foundation of Christianity that men are sinners and need a savior. We can sing song here. They'll start singing next couple, next month or two. Per, pretty well, what day? Uh, Friday, maybe Thursday afternoon. The whole country is going to be filled with Christmas carols being sung about a savior being born, and most of the country doesn't even think they need a savior. Save from what? From climate change? Is that the savior? The Bible Savior is about saving people from sin. But we don't believe in sin as Americans anymore. I'm okay and you're okay. We don't have sin. But I can tell you something. This And this is why Christianity is unpopular. You cannot be saved unless you know you're a sinner. You cannot have a Savior until you know and have been convicted of the sin. You know, Jesus prophesied that this would be the case. And there's many places we could go, but for the sake of time, let's just go and look at this one uh, that that he says in John 16, I think I referred to this earlier, when, that when Jesus says, when he has come, that's the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment, of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the rule of this world is judged. Jesus already judged this world and its ruler, Satan, and all those who follow him. 
And there's only one way forward. Now I want you to think about this another way then. People dispute, and have disputed with me, the fact that the church cannot begin until men are convicted of sin. They dispute that proposition, strangely enough. But I want you to think about the church. The church, God had done all that he could, all through history, all the Old Testament. He'd done all that he could, all the way through the life of Christ, and yet there was no church. He'd done all that he could. He had brought Christ into the world and, and raised him up, and there was still no church. Was there? No. He had, he had sent the prophets. No church. Jesus had been born. No church. He, he, Jesus taught. He lived. He died. No church. He'd been raised from the dead and he ascended to heaven. No church. That's what the history says. He had, he had even sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. No church. Peter was preaching what the Holy Spirit told him and there was still no church. The gospel had been preached. No church. You know when it happened? You know when the church began? When those people on that day, those 3,000 accepted the word of God and were convicted of their sin, then the church was born. The kingdom was established when Christ was seated on the throne. You know, when Christ was raised from the dead and ascended to his Father, I believe the scriptures teach, at least infer very strongly, that that's when the kingdom of Christ began. He became, when he would, when he was seated on God's right hand, he was the ruler. His kingdom had been established. That's what the prophet said. When he was seated on God's right hand, on David's throne, he was the king and his kingdom was established. Was there a church? No. When did the church begin? Well, the, the church is, begins when there are people who accept Christ's rule. I can tell you something. If, they, if the gospel had been preached on Pentecost and no one had responded at all, they had all turned away and walked away that day when Peter got done preaching and not one soul had been baptized, there would not be a church. Oh, unless you count the apostles and some few disciples there. And I'm not sure what they would have done at that point. But there would be no church as we know it today because no one had... Would Christ still be ruling? Would he still be the ruler of the world? Yes, he would. He'd be the king of kings, but there'd be no church. Because the church requires people who have been convicted by the Holy Spirit of sin. People like you. Who at some point in your life, most of you realize that I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I need to be saved by Jesus Christ. I need to be baptized, buried, washed, made a new person. Now that I'm a new person, I'm going to follow the Lord. You have accepted his rule. Because the word kingdom uh, basically means to, uh, royal power, kingship, dominion, rule. Uh, and it's mostly the authority to rule over a kingdom is how this word is used in Greek, not the, an actual kingdom. And so it's the territory. Notice what God says about this. I think, now I don't want to get too far sidetracked here, but I think the kingdom of God would have been established even if no men had ever obeyed the gospel. Even if no one had obeyed the gospel on Pentecost, God's kingdom would have been established on earth. Here's where I get that. In Psalm 2, the prophet said, David says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, that's Jehovah, and his anointed, who's that? That's Jesus, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. This is specifically what they were doing during his life and his trial before the Sanhedrin and before the Pilate. That's specifically what they were saying. We're going to break him and we're going to get rid of this man. 
It's a bro- used in a broader sense even here. So the world says we're going to break in pieces God's rule and His ruler. We're going to reject Him. But the Scriptures say... Eh, I don't, no, I don't want to get into all that. Never mind. I was going to get into the foolishness of premillennial teaching that says since the Jews rejected Christ when He first came, that God just set up the church and established the kingdom later. That foolishness you hear on Sunday morning radio and TV all the time. That's foolishness. This verse says that when God was going to establish His rule, He who sits in, and men oppose it, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh and the Lord shall hold them in derision. God laughed at the Jews when they said they'd reject Christ. When he tried to put, when he, they tried to put him to death or did put him to death. He will hold, and he said, he shall speak to them in his wrath. His distress and his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. You reject him. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill. Whether you like it or not. Whether anyone ever obeys him or not. He's king. I will declare to the decree of the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today have I begotten thee. Ask of me, he says, and I will give you the nation. This is speaking now, God speaking to Christ. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. They don't obey you. They don't love you. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them in pieces like the potter's vessel. So be wise, you kings of the earth. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice in trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. So this is a direct refutation of the idea that men can reject the kingdom of Christ and God will do something else. This says God established His kingdom when He wanted to. And men can either obey it, come into it and be saved or be lost. So when you look at this then, the world has to realize that it's lost and needs the cleansing blood of Christ. When I say the world there, I'm talking starting with me. And I also am talking about you. We individually have to realize, and everybody else does too, that we're lost without Jesus Christ and we need His cleansing blood. This is the thing that must motivate us when we come here to worship each week, when we speak to each other, when we take the Lord's Supper, when we go out of this place and meet our friends and neighbors, we have to be motivated by this idea that we once were lost, now we've been saved, and we this happened because of the blood of Christ. And we need never to forget, ever forget that. Because I think what's happened to a lot of churches that I've seen, a lot of Christians I've known, as good-hearted as they are, and maybe even to me, is that we've forgotten that lesson that we're lost without Christ, that we were lost without Christ, that we are sinners. Now, sometimes it seems we teach everything else first. We want to make teach someone to be a Christian. We say, well, you know, if you become a Christian, you'll have a happier marriage. That's true a lot of the time, not all the time. Or, you know, if you're a Christian, you become a Christian, you'll know how to handle your money better. You'll, you'll God will bless you and you'll get, have a better life. We, we teach them all kinds of stuff about Christianity, but we don't teach them the thing that they most need. We don't do what they most need to do here is that they're lost without Christ. They're a sinner. We don't try to steer them and point them to the fact of their own personal sin. We may not even know what it is. Now, now look, I, I, I don't know about you, but I've had this experience hundreds of times sitting across a table from somebody, someone or in a restaurant trying to talk to them about the gospel, trying to direct their attention to the fact that they're lost without Christ. And the reason they're lost is because they're a sinner. They've done things that are wrong. They think and do things even to that very moment that are wrong, that are opposed to God, that are self-oriented, that have hurt other people. 
They violated God's commands over and over many of them. Even despite the fact that they're good people. People that look good and come to church and do all these nice things. Maybe they run a business, they give a lot of money to the poor. None of those things can save them. Because the things that are really wrong are deep in the heart. They may be doing all those things to be seen of men. Or some other thing, you see. And all of us face this problem. And until we come to grips with that problem, that we are rebels against the God of heaven. From the time we're young, we're rebels. We're going to do our own thing. Nobody can tell us what to do. This is the flesh speaking to us. And in our generation, it's become even more radicalized. My body, my choice, my life, my choice, I'll do whatever I want, including killing other human beings, and nobody can say anything about it. I even get to choose what sex I am, not God. I get to choose. We're so arrogant, so lifted up against Him and His rule. Now this is why people are lost. This is why this church meets. It's a group of people who acknowledge, yes, we've been there, we reject that way of thinking and living, we're turning to God, we're going to honor Him. And all the things we do this morning, in our singing, in, in our the Lord's Supper, in the preaching, in the praying, in how we greet each other. We're acknowledging that we are going to follow the God of heaven and not our own desires. But we need to keep the New Testament approach in our evangelism and in our thinking about how we do things. So the church can't forget, we can't forget this. And, and the thing, I guess I said this first when Judy can probably remember when I was about 20 years, 21 or 22 years old in a sermon. That's a long time ago when you're as old as me. You, you can, and people, well, you're, you think you're smart. You sound smart. Use big words, but you just said something really dumb. And what I said was, you, you can't be saved until you're lost. And they looked at me like, what? You can't be saved until you're lost? That's stupid. No. I think it's brilliant. Why is it brilliant? That's the whole point of this. A lot of people want to be saved, but they never, ever, ever, ever want to admit that they're lost to get there. They're a good person. They're, they're going to do some favor to God by coming and worshiping Him. Look at all these gifts I have. People want, to, people want to come and worship God and they want to make sure they use their gifts. Why don't you kneel before God and say, what do you want me to do to serve you? No, we're going to bring God our gifts. Let God decide what gifts He wants from you. And then do that. This was Cain's problem from the very beginning. He offered the sacrifice that he wanted, not the sacrifice that God had com commanded. Abel offered a better sacrifice because it was done by faith. In other words, he did what God commanded. From the very beginning of human history, this is the problem. So you can't be saved. Now, now forgetting this eventually leads to apathy and strife. Forgetting a church, a group of people, or a denominator, a group of people in churches of Christ across the country, whatever, however big you want to make it. And even you, individually, when you forget that you were lost in your own devices and you had to be saved from that by a power beyond yourself, when you forget that, you'll become apathetic to the gospel. It won't mean as much to you. And that's why I've seen it over and over again in preaching and the problems I've dealt with, and not too many here, but in the past in particular, the problems that I had came from people who were second and third generation Christians who had inherited their Christianity from their parents or grandparents. I had very few problems from people that I went out, met somewhere, or they came, we met somehow, 
when we taught the gospel and they were baptized, they became a Christian because they were pricked in their hearts. I had no problem with those people. You know why? Because they weren't apathetic, number one, and they weren't so sure of themselves. They were willing to follow the Lord. And they weren't interested in causing trouble. They just wanted to do good. They wanted to get along with everybody. They wanted to do good and right, and they were willing to work together because they knew they had been lost, and now they were saved. The ones who thought they were saved by by the rights of God because they were born into the church of Christ, nothing but trouble. Not nothing but trouble. That's overstatement. A lot of trouble. And we, if you've been around long enough, you see this. It's human nature. And it's not, it's not something that's endemic to, to, um, th- this church or some other church. So when you forget this, you will become apathetic in your Christianity and you will be filled with strife. You'll always be looking for trouble when you forget that you too were, were a sinner. So this is a faithful saying. You know, P- Paul's memories of being a sinner is what undergirded his whole, his, we love the apostle Paul. We love his work. We love what he does. He's the greatest of all the people that wrote the Bible. God gave him a ministry that wrote most of the New Testament. That's how much he thought of this man. And he was a man, even though he was inspired. He was a great man, but there's something that was underneath all the things that Paul wrote. And that was, he was chief of sinners. And he kept remembering that. People are like, oh, well, you can't bring up the fact that I used to be a sinner because God forgave me, so, uh, you know, he forgets all that. No, God remembers. By, by remember, he says, he doesn't hold it against you when you've repented, but he remembers. You should remember what you were. You should know. And that's what Paul said here. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Chief means first in line. You know, he's got says, you know, you go to gym class and you're a kid, line up by height, you know. And so you get to line up and always, always, you know, not the first, not the last. Line up by height. If they lined up by muscles, I'd be the last. But anyway, you get to line up. Sinners, line up. The worst one's first. Paul says I'd be number one. The word RK here means first. That's what he thought of himself. Oh, it's not good to beat yourself up and have a negative view of yourself. Well, it may not be good to a pop psychologist, but Paul used it to fuel his ministry to serve the Lord as a servant. He wasn't trying to be a leader. He was trying to be a servant. And so there's two elements here. And then we can go to some other things. Two errors here, I should say. You forget that you were and are a sinner in Christian in Christ. After you become a Christian, you forget that you were a sinner and still are a sinner. You forget that. That's an error, a tragic error that happens so much of the time. And then secondly, you can let your past keep from doing well today. That's something Paul didn't do when you read what he wrote. He remembered what he was, but he didn't let that past, that he had been a murderer, an insolent man, he says, a blasphemer, he didn't let that stop him from doing what he could today with the gifts that God gave him today to do something. That's the hard part. That's where a lot of us fail, but that's where you have to succeed. Remembering who you are, but then using your gifts today with God's blessing to do what's right. And that's why he could write something like this here with the help of the Holy Spirit in Philippians chapter 3. Not that I've already obtained or am perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of, of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting the things which are behind and, re- and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press on 
to the goal, the prize, or the upward call in Christ Jesus. Now, when he said forgetting the things that are behind, he doesn't mean not remembering them. He just told you about them. He remembers them. But forgetting here means not letting them hinder you from going forward. All this victimhood we have today, everybody's a victim, and that's going to taint everything they do, is not productive. It's not even scriptural. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you are otherwise, you think otherwise, God will reveal this unto you. Yet, nevertheless, the degree, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by that same rule. Let us have the same mind. So, however far along you are in this walk, by however much you know, however far you've gone, you live by that today, and then you can move on. Here's the conclusion that I want you to think about, whether you're a Christian or not one. You're lost until you repent of your sin and obey God. That's what the message of Acts 2 is. You're lost. Unfortunately, that encompasses most of mankind. But you're lost unless you repent. You don't become a Christian by deciding to go to church on Sunday and just going to church. You're going to church is what you're doing. That's good. But you become a Christian... First, by repenting, by turning from the way of thinking and living. Then you can be, be baptized in the name of Christ. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean, Isaiah says. And he says in verse 18, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Put away the evil you're doing and cease to do evil, he says. Learn to do good. So cease evil, learn to do good. And then you can be as white as snow. When they cried out, what men and brethren, what shall we do? Back here in the book of Acts, go back to the beginning real quickly as we close. When they cried out, what shall we do? Peter told them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. You know, people say, well, you emphasize that too much. It's pretty hard to emphasize that too much. That's pretty hard to do. Because it is put right here at the very crux, the beginning of Christianity, at the centerpiece where everything pivoted from Christ's life and resurrection to the kingdom that was here now. Everything pivoted, and it pivoted on these verses right here. This is the crux of it. And it became the focal point of Peter and his preaching and of Paul later and all the other apostles became the focal point of what they taught. So I encourage you to think about that. You want to be, you want to be a New Testament Christian? You can, you can be one. It doesn't start by filling out some form. It starts by you deciding that I'm going to change the way I'm living. I'm going to live for God and repent of whatever wrong you've done. Decide to follow Him. When you've repented, are you willing to confess that you believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son? When you do that, the unit, Philip told the eunuch that if you confess with your mouth, you may be baptized. So we can baptize you into Christ this hour. You can become a Christian. You can begin that journey just to follow Christ. Others around you may fail, but you can continue to follow Christ. So can we help you today? If so, you come right down to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.